Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, power struggle in the protest. Organizations kind of came in, tried to, to set, set camp up. It was a power struggle a lot of the time. Convoy organizers take the stand this week at the National Inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. But was anyone in control of the protest that took over the Capitol? We'll break it all down with Judy Trend, who's at the inquiry, who has been at the inquiry, and some former police leaders. Then, immigration boost. It's simple to me. Canada needs more people. The feds want half a million new immigrants a year by 2025 to counter labor shortages and our rapidly aging population. Is that number realistic? We'll get the legal breakdown. Plus, B.C. puts up big bucks to keep doctors in the province. Facing a shortage of family doctors, British Columbia is giving them a serious raise. Will it be enough to stop the brain drain? We'll ask B.C.'s health minister. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. What were you hoping to achieve by participating in the convoy? Uh, I, I primarily wanted the government to listen to our concerns. It was uh, completely organic. Everything just literally fell right into place. Uh, it was, I believe it was about two weeks from the time we started talking about it to the time we actually left. It was extremely fast. That was Chris Barber. He was one of the key organizers of the convoy that rolled into Ottawa and occupied the capital for three weeks. Barber was also the first protest leader to testify at the commission looking into the government's use of the Emergencies Act. After spending days driving to Ottawa, he spent weeks protesting in the streets of this city. He was also facing charges stemming from the protest in a trial that's set for next year. Now, part of his testimony talked about his motivation, his actions, and his relationship with other convoy leaders, Pat King and Tamara Leach. Both of them are expected to testify this week. CTV National News correspondent Judy Trin has been following the inquiry. Once again, she joins us live here. Judy, you watched Chris Barber's testimony. It was interesting in a lot of different ways, but especially about talking how the convoy came together. What can you tell us about that? Well, what was interesting to me is that he points out that it was organic and grassroots, and that, to a certain degree, is true, because it did attract a lot of people uh, at the very last moment. But what he did not uh, say in his opening statement was that there were extremist elements that he was well aware of within that group, and there was a power struggle between them. He listed five individuals that were in charge, uh, himself, Tamara Leach, James Bowder, uh, a woman that's uh, testifying right now. Um, as well as Pat King. And what he points out is that uh, James Bowder uh, was in charge of Canada Unity, who wanted to basically overthrow the government. And Pat King had actually made TikTok videos calling for uh, Trudeau to take a bullet. Mm -hmm. Now, he was aware and he was asked on the stand, why did he allow those elements to remain? And he basically admitted that he needed the followers that, were, uh, that Pat King was able to bring. He didn't want to lose that type of support, Mike. To keep this sort of coalition together, and it's interesting how it talks about this power structure. Also something that I thought uh, that we've been talking about in the newsroom, he revealed his own vaccine status and also what, how he views mask mandates. How was that played out? 
Well, it's interesting. Uh, that came as a surprise to me that he was vaccinated, uh, but he said he wanted to continue his business. Uh, he also mentioned that what changed him uh, was these criminal charges. His son watched him get arrested, so he is no longer the internet troll that he described himself as. He was on, and we should always point out that there's a little bit of revisionist history right now, right? Before his arrest, he was known for making inflammatory remarks. He was racist. He made. He admitted that he made anti-Muslim uh, memes. And so that is actually aligns himself with what Pat King was doing. So it begs the question whether or not he was sympathetic to the cause to a certain degree. And that's why he allowed some of these extreme elements to continue within the convoy instead of clamping down on it. It also shows that he couldn't control the more extreme elements. Um, there is an example, Mike, that was brought up uh, repeatedly about the corner of Rideau and Sussex, right. which was a logjam, and police could not negotiate with those protesters. So they asked um, Barber to help and Tamara Leach to help, but they were ineffective because basically those entrenched protesters were not listening to them at all. Speaks to uh, the difficulty and, and the, the struggle with the structure that was there. Judy Trin, CTV News national correspondent, thank you again for following all this and being Welcome. here. So. Part of Chris Barber's testimony included his communication with police all along the route to Ottawa. And then when the trucks actually got to the capital, Barber said he even had a police escort to Parliament Hill. Now, on the flip side, Barber admitted Ottawa police were likely overwhelmed by the sheer number of trucks in this city at that time. There have been many questions about how police dealt with the intelligence, but we're going to look at how police dealt with the protesters once they got here. Could they have done more to control the situation? Well, joining us to talk more about that is Ontario Provincial Police Chief, former Ontario P Provincial Police Chief and CTV News Public Safety Analyst Chris Lewis and retired London, Ontario Police Chief Murray Faulkner. Thank you both for being with us. Chief Faulkner, let's start with you. Now, part of what we heard today was a rough power structure, as Judy had just sort of described, in the protest. And then Chris Barber talked about how once the flames were fanned, it became too difficult to keep everyone together. What do you think about that assessment? Well, first of all, I did watch about two hours of Mr. Barber's testimony today. And, you know, he came across as uh, like somebody that's living next door that had good intentions to, to voice his concerns about... Uh, the vaccination and masks and mandates around uh, health care in our country. But in essence, he started an event that once the ball got rolling down the hill, he had no control of. And it was actually hijacked, if you want to believe him, uh, by individuals that had a far more sinister uh, motive for coming to Ottawa. When large groups like this get together and they come from three, four different parts of Canada, you'll never get one individual to stand up and say, I speak for everybody that's here today. I think Commissioner Lewis can uh, verify that when he's dealing with some other issues uh, in, in, in Ontario. So it's very difficult uh, to negotiate uh, with individuals that really don't have a command structure. Commissioner Lewis, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, some people and politicians had suggested if only the government had a meeting with organizers, this wouldn't have grown so much out of control. Hearing what we're hearing now about how loosely affiliated these people were, would that have even been realistic? 
Well, you never know until you try. Uh, I get the, you know, the situation was such, it wasn't a terrorist attack, but, but you know, the old, we don't negotiate with terrorist situation uh, that we've always uh, preached. In this case, they had control of the city of Ottawa and they weren't willing to give an inch. And so would that have worked? I don't know. I might have tried, at least if I was uh, an elected politician in Ottawa uh, at the time. But as Murray said, and you suggested, and Barbara stated that they did lose control because there's always that well-intended group in any protest, whether it be the four ladies from Western Canada that started Idle No More on behalf of ind Indigenous communities, or in this case, that were concerned, truckers concerned about mandates that start this cause. And then there's people there that want to have cause violence. They want to fight with the police. They want their moment of fame. They want to boost their, their Twitter and, and uh, TikTok accounts. And they're not in it for the same reasons. And then there's a whole bunch of others that don't even know why they're there, but they get caught up in it after a night of drinking in the, you know, downtown or something. But that, that scary group of the ones that want to fight, because they're not looking to negotiate through anything. They just want to cause trouble. And, uh, and so once you lose control uh, to that group, you're at their mercy. And I suggest many people got caught up in this and couldn't get their trucks out of there because they're afraid to put up their hand. And so that just compounded the issue and made it go on longer. Chief Faulkner, I wanted to ask you, we heard that there had been some communication between police and protesters. That's not abnormal, considering that it was a massive sort of convoy and traffic needed to be diverted. But were police a little too trusting of the organizers as they came into the capital? Well, there's no question that uh, the intelligence information they got wasn't read properly or interpreted, I will say. You know, and Ottawa police obviously... Uh, didn't plan for the worst and hope for the best, and we can see what happened. The best certainly didn't happen there. Uh, you know, I will say that um, negotiations with with individuals like this can only go so far, and and eventually uh, you come to a point where you're you're done talking and you have to take some actions. And it's just unfortunate for the residents of downtown Ottawa that it took uh, almost 18 days. Uh, to clear up, clear up the streets. I'll also say that um, you know we've heard. I call this inquiry the three P's: the police we've heard from, the protesters we're hearing from, and now the politicians at the end. And and we ha can't lose sight of the fact that was the emergency act required. That's what it's all about. And so hopefully we'll get to some uh, conclusions with that. Commissioner Lewis, just less than a minute with you here now. There is some planning that goes into every protest. So talking to organizers is, is not abnormal. But should police have really known what they were dealing with, that there wasn't one organization in this voice and one voice for this organization? Absolutely. Uh, and, and that was, is not uncommon in large protests. Uh, you hope on the police side you have one voice. Uh, a, a united front, a united voice, united goals, objectives, and, and uh, strategies. Uh, on the other side, you kind of hope that times they are disorganized uh, and there's not someone real hard in control of it all that might want to really start a, a violent acts. But in, in most protests, there's such varying egos, such varying interests, uh, different levels of commitment to what's going on and the ultimate cause. And we see that at every large protest. This one involved trucks, which complicated it. But other than that, it was a typical protest on many fronts. 
Retired Commissioner Lewis, retired Chief Faulkner. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Still to come, will your child's school close on Friday? That's the question every parent wants to know. Ontario's government is pressing on with preemptive back-to-work legislation while education workers continue to plan a walkout. We'll get the latest from Queen's Park right after this. Yes, we will use the tools available to elected government to provide stability on Friday and every day thereafter. I do not want to see strikes down the road, which is why we've used that provision of the Constitution. Using the notwithstanding clause to suspend workers' rights um, is wrong. I know that, that collective bargaining negotiations are sometimes difficult, but it has to happen. It has to be done in a respectful, thoughtful way at the bargaining table. Schools across Ontario could close this Friday as tens of thousands of education workers plan to walk off the job. Now, talks between the Ontario government and CUPE, the union representing more than 55,000 education workers in this province, are crumbling. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce is trying to avoid closures by preemptively introducing back-to-work legislation. But the union says even if they can't legally strike, they'll protest on Friday, shutting down many schools across the province. So, what can we expect in the days ahead? Let's bring in Siobhan Morris. She's CTV News' Queen's Park reporter. Good to have you here. So, Siobhan, the rhetoric was ramped up yesterday when the government moved to impose a deal on workers. Have we seen a bit of a cooling between both sides to stop schools from closing? Not at all. I mean, this was a day that started at 5 a.m., which is not typical operating procedure here at Queen's Park. So you saw people really full of vim and vigor at 5 o'clock in the morning, really hammering the government over this move to impose a contract. And, and the way the opposition sees it, really also trampling on their rights to, to uh, constitute, or excuse me, their rights to bargain. Yeah, and especially when you consider that the Ford government preemptively using the notwithstanding clause when you talk about rights here. I mean, that clause temporarily overrides portions of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So what is the fallout from that continued to be today? That really has been a, a point of worry, not just for the discussion around what's happening with CUPE, this set of negotiations, but what might be down the road for teachers' negotiations, which are still unfolding in Ontario. And frankly, there's worry about this in the broader labor sector, the feeling being if the government's prepared to lay down this hammer out of the gate with this particular set of negotiations, what's to stop them to do from doing the same thing down the road? That's something that is part of why CUPE says really that they are planning to walk out on Friday, irrespective of whether or not uh, there's legislation in place to prevent them from doing that. And irrespective of the fines that they're facing and even the workers, Siobhan? So far, yes. I mean, the QP hasn't really been willing to say how much they'd be willing to pay, and it's a little unclear about whether the government would really follow up, although they have been highlighting the fines that uh, QP as a union and individual members would would uh, pay. QP has said, well, good luck collecting uh, that that level of, uh, of fine from uh, these workers who they say have a difficult time making ends meet as it is. They won't have the money to pay any fines that might be leveled against them. Just about a minute left, but there's another topic at Queen's Park we want to get you on. Ontario Premier Doug Ford still challenging that summons from the Emergencies Act inquiry today in court. He maintains that he has parliamentary privilege and cannot be compelled to appear before the commission. How is Ford's refusal to testify at the inquiry playing out at the legislature? 
It definitely is sort of a parallel story and, and also this interesting use of the court saying, well, the, the premier thinks well enough to use the courts to try and circumvent having to go testify at an inquiry, but he's not giving unions the option to take uh, the government to court should they not be happy with the imposed contract. But it really boils down to both the premier and his deputy premier, the former solicitor general, saying, look, we can't be compelled to, to testify because of parliamentary privilege that it would really put them in a bad position uh, in, in terms of precedents, really, that pulling them away from their jobs here at Queen's Park. CTV News' Queen's Park reporter Siobhan Morris, thanks so much for joining us, Siobhan. You're welcome. Coming up, health system overhaul in B.C. A new funding model has been announced, and the province hopes it will ease the family doctor crisis in that province. The B.C. health minister is up next as Power Play continues. BC is putting up some big bucks, but will it be enough to contain the province's family doctor crisis? One in five residents in British Columbia don't have a family doctor. The province is hedging its bets on a new payment model set for February to attract and retain family doctors. Now, the new three-year agreement inked with the doctors of BC will see a full-time doctor make $385,000 a year. That's up from the current $250,000 annual salary. So is the move away from the current fee for service system the solution? And can a three-year deal really fix a system in crisis? Let's find out. And joining me to discuss this is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Thank you so much for being with us, Minister. I'll get right into it. This new system is being described as a seismic shift in how healthcare is managed. Why did it take a crisis to come up with this new payment model? Well, this has been called on for really for decades, and we've worked closely together with our family doctors over the last number of months and our doctors in BC to bring an arrangement that will transform the way that we pay doctors, but also deliver care to patients. It moves away from a notion of fee-for-service, which was kind of the historical way in which primary care and doctors' primary care was done in Canada to moving towards a system that reflects the work doctors do, the hours they spend, the complexity of patients. This is something, as I say, we co-developed with our doctors in BC to respond to real, very significant concerns with respect to primary care. It's been a hard two years uh, in all healthcare systems. We're in two public health emergencies in BC, and we are as we speak. And that has transformed primary care, and uh, action was required, and you know, in uh, I think a way consistent with how you implement real change. We've done that action and we've responded to that with action together, which is the best possible response. Now, some health policy researchers caution that moving away from the fee-for-service model, they say that it could have some unintended consequences. There's research literature showing that increases in phys physician compensation could actually result in reduced services. What do you say to that? I say that we have an agreement that focuses on the hours of work by uh, primary care doctors, that, it, that in any event, what those researchers I think are ignoring, is that younger doctors, the doctors we need to replace doctors who are retiring and add to our system, don't want to be business people. They want to uh, practice medicine, and they don't generally like the fee-for-service model. So what you need to do is provide an alternative that maintains 
the professional independence of doctors increases the amount of work done and deals with complexity of care. A fee-for-service model tends to treat someone with serious health concerns who needs to be dealt with for multiple things in the same way as we deal with someone who's renewing a prescription. This system, which we developed together, I think, will effectively respond to changes in modern health care. And this reflects the, the changes we need to ensure that younger doctors don't become just hospitalists and do the many other things that are also very important in our healthcare system, but also choose full-service family practice. And that was a challenge that we were facing, that many people trained as family doctors were not choosing it because the model was, in the words of the president of the doctors of BC, broken. I want to talk to you a little bit about the price tag, $708 million over three years. How does the government measure whether or not this will actually be successful? What are the benchmarks? When will you decide, yeah, this was worth it? Well, this is, first of all, a three-year contract renewal with doctors. But I think, uh, I think uh, it's already demonstrating its value. While we were having this discussion and developing this model with doctors, we took specific steps in uh, August to deal with uh, business costs and uh, overhead costs of doctors. And that, uh, that initiative has been overwhelmingly subscribed by doctors. Secondly, with respect to younger doctors, new to practice doctors, we didn't want to miss those who were coming into the profession this year from being resident doctors. And so we offered a new to practice contract that so far has been taken up by three times the doctors of the, uh, for full service family practice of the previous model. So we're already seeing it in action. And of course, this is not a standalone measure. This is foundational. But we also have to take the measures that we are taking to improve access for international medical graduates, to ensure that we, uh, that we focus in our training on full service family practice, that we add residency positions, and we also um, pay doctors to oversee those residency positions. You can't do one without the other. That's also in the agreement. We've added recently 128 spaces, uh, two-thirds of them uh, postgraduate, one-third of them uh, uh, um, uh, regular medical education to our system, 128 new spaces uh, in our system. We're going to be adding a new medical school at Simon Fraser University. So we need to add supply, but what this ensures is that it's directed towards full-service family practice. People need a family practice doctor and a team around health care, and that's what this agreement seeks to provide. So I'm encouraged, but it's only one step. It's a foundational step but there's a whole number of things we have to do. We in BC have a 70 action uh, health human resources plan, and we need to do all of those actions. And of course, it's not just doctors, it's nurses, it's allied health workers, it's healthcare workers that and, we need as well. And in addition to that, Minister, I mean, there's also the negotiations, those ongoing negotiations with the federal government about increasing federal health, health transfers. How does that affect this and the, or this plan? I mean, uh, put up against the transfers, is, is this something that you're doing ahead of time so that the federal government wouldn't put strings attached on the money that they, you would want more from the federal health transfers? Well, uh, the federal government has an obligation to do its share, and I think it's been established that it hasn't done its share with respect to the Canada health transfer. Premiers of all political stripes have made this case. Health care costs and healthcare expenditure by province has vastly exceeded increase in the Canada health transfer in terms of share of increase. So we need the federal government to come to the table 
and to negotiate changes that improve these actions. But what do you think that this model in fits into what their interest. idea would be? Minister, do you think this model that you're proposing here or that you have on the table fits into what they want as well when they are looking to send that money to the provinces? Well, I would think so because this is a refresh of a primary care plan that improves primary care services to Canadians, both for physical and mental health. And it's consistent, of course, with the Canada Health Act, but more importantly than that, it's exactly the kind of investment in frontline services that people need. The same thing is occurring with the very significant increases in nursing. In BC, since 2017, we've added 38,000, uh, 38, 38, more healthcare workers across the board. That's net new healthcare workers, 38,000. And we're going to have to do it again in the next few years in order, because of increased demands of the system, that we need to respond to. We're in the midst of two public health emergencies. It's time that the federal government also came to the table and uh, made changes to the Canada Health Transfer and contributed its share of the burden to ensure that everywhere in Canada, people who need family doctors, who need nurse practitioners, who need emergency care, who need mental health and addiction support, get it. And it's not by sitting back and not engaging that you can get these things done. So we're, I'm, of course, always encouraging the Prime Minister to come to the table. We are working on a lot of things together, but the Canada Health Transfer, just like this agreement in BC that we just announced, is foundational to all that happening. And it's our hope that the federal government will demonstrate its commitment to public health care by coming to the table on the Canada Health Transfer. But this is exactly what we're doing, which is investing in public health care for people in BC. What we did throughout the pandemic, it's what we've done in long-term care, it's what we've done for nursing, it's what we've done for allied health workers, it's what we've done in emergency health services, it's what we're doing by building hospitals and increasing our number of surgeries. So that money is going directly to frontline staff. The amount and the share of administration as a share of our budget is going down. So I would expect the federal government to step up as well. I encourage them to do that and certainly Premier Horgan has made that a central part of his, uh, of his efforts when, during the year that he was leader of the, of the Council of the Federation. Minister uh, of Health for BC, Adrian Dix, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Great to be on Power Play. Still to come, a spike in immigration targets. Canada plans to bring in 500,000 newcomers a year by 2025, but the Immigration Department is already plagued with a long wait times and backlogs. Will the government's new immigration goals work to address labor shortages? Toronto immigration lawyer Joel Sandaluk joins the press gallery right after this. It's simple to me. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population if we're going to meet the needs of the labor force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable. Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Minister Sean Fraser announcing today the federal government plans to bring in 500,000 new immigrants per year by the year 2025. Fraser says the move is being made to grow Canada's economy and address labor shortages right across this country. 
Here's how that will all break down. Next year, the target is 465,000 permanent residents. Then it moves up to half a million annually by the year 2025. It comes as one-fifth of Canada's working population nears retirement age, according to Statistics Canada. And recent census data shows a record of 23% of people in Canada are either landed immigrants or refugees. But Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Canada has been dealing with significant application backlogs, which were only made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the government department, of the 2.6 million applications in the system, nearly 1.5 million of them are backlogged. So will the new immigration targets be enough to address labour shortages? And can Canada even process half a million applications a year? Let's take this question to the press gallery. We've got Bob Fife. He's the Global Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Emily Nicolas, she's a columnist for Le Devoir. And our special guest today is Toronto immigration lawyer, Joel Sandala. Nice to have you all here. Joel, we'll start with you. What's your reaction to Minister Fraser's announcement? I mean, are these targets even feasible considering the backlogs we're seeing in immigration right now? It's hard to say. It's not as simple as simply turning on a tap. All of these applications have to be processed. They have to be vetted. People have to do medical checks, background checks. And the inventory is already over 2.5 million people. So if they wanted to increase the number to 5 million people a year, it's not necessarily clear that there will be all that many more people actually arriving. Bob, bring you in here for a second. I mean, politically... How are these targets expected to play out when you consider this is a department that has already shown in a government that has shown that it can't clear the backlog that they're dealing with already? Well, look, I mean, uh, people in uh, immigration, immigrant communities are going to say this is wonderful. They're going to bring in, you know, 500,000 people um, because we do need the workers, as, as we know. But the problem is, as you've identified, is that we can't get them processed. Right. There's a huge, huge backlog. And maybe another way out of this is that the government should be working with the provinces to allow the provinces to select a larger number of these people because they actually have a better idea what their workforce's requirements mm -hmm. are. Particularly in Ontario, for example, it's construction workers right now, not people with PhDs. And allow them to do the processing um, just as a way to figure out how we can reduce that backlog. We have to be more creative because this government hasn't been very creative. Uh, in terms of dealing with uh, the, what, is the, what is a crisis here because the backlogs are so long. And asking for the provinces to have more of a handle in it is something that Francois Legault has been asking for. Emily, let's bring you in here. Premier Francois Legault has called Trudeau's immigration targets, quote, extreme and that they'd be, quote, a bit suicidal for French culture. I mean, how do you expect Fraser's announcement to, from him today to play out in Quebec? I think it's going to be a very tricky conversation. Um, and I mean, François Legault himself could do more uh, if he wanted to uh, with the powers that he already have to uh, select a greater proportion of economic immigrants who already speak French before coming here. So um, if for him to, uh, uh, you know, make an equation between uh, immigration and, and, and suicide for the French language, which is such a strong word, uh, is very incorrect. Uh, there is a large number of countries in the world that have people that, that speak French, and obviously people can learn it too. Uh, however, uh, just going back to our earlier conversation, I, I would say, though, that um, what we've been seeing in Canada in the last years is an increasing number of people who are already here in Canada, but uh, working um, you know, with temporary permits, and so with that increased target, what it might do, it's not necessarily just people coming over to Canada. 
and applying for immigration, but it's people who are already been living in the country. Sometimes people have been coming as international students or people who've been coming as temporary workers uh, who might also be able to uh, access permanent residency and eventually citizenship as well. So I think it's important to 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 have that in mind when we say, you know, we want to increase the immigration targets, not just people coming over to Canada, it's people who are already here having access to citizenship as well. And Joel, Fraser's new immigration levels plan has a focus on skilled workers as he tries to address Canada's labor shortage. But there's also an emphasis on rural communities in the plan. What do you make of that? This is something that's been a goal of immigration for years, for decades, in fact, to try to increase the number of immigrants going to uh, working in agriculture, going to smaller communities. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver have always been such massive magnets for immigrants coming to Canada that anything the government can do to disperse those individuals across, you know, into smaller communities in the country is always something they've tried to do. The problem is, even as you've been saying, the, you know, the provinces could be more involved in immigration, even those provincial nominee programs where people are selected by, pro by provinces as desirable immigrants, those programs are taking about a year and a half to get uh, processed as well. And in a lot of ways, the government is trying to be a little bit creative. They're experimenting with the use of AIs to screen applications. Uh, the entire express entry system is really designed to uh, allow the government to be more flexible in the selection of immigrants. What they really have is a much more old-fashioned problem, which is just not enough hands to do the work. And I think it's been an issue that's you know caused, exacerbated certainly by COVID, and it is continuing to be a problem, and it will probably continue to be a problem until the government dedicates more resources to this program. So, Bob, what do they do about it then? I mean, it's good and all to have these new targets, but you had made the point, Joel's making the point, Emily's making the point, there's nobody to process them. So should the focus be there first instead of setting these grand yeah, targets? It, it, yes, there has to be somebody to do the processing, but we have to do a better job of involving the provinces, which they do have a better idea of what they need for their workforce. Mm -hmm. For example, um, you know, uh, Manitoba has, uh, has had a, a, a very successful program in integrating immigrants into the workforce, and they tend to stay there. They don't move to Toronto. Mm -hmm. So if you can get the provinces to have a role in, in, in speeding up, as Joel said, it's still like a year and a half for the provinces, but if we can figure out a way to speed all this up, um, then we should be able to you know, be able to integrate these workers into the workforce. But, you know, we keep hiring. How many people we've hired? Like, we have 340,000 public servants. I mean, right. surely somebody could be taken from another department and put into immigration to deal with this thing. Yeah. Emily, I mean, when you think of, you know, what Quebec wants and what they continue to say that they want, do you think that they would play ball with the federal government here in helping to sort of facilitate this backlog? And even if it is just sort of making sure that they're picking and choosing the immigrants that they feel would, uh, you know, assimilate or basically, uh, you know, work into Quebec culture better than others? So what we've been seeing in Quebec is that it actually takes longer for your permanent residency uh, application uh, to be processed if you're applying from Quebec than if you're applying from any other province. So uh, I'm seeing, you know, others th thinking it might be better to have uh, provinces involved in terms of picking immigrants that, that, that align with the economic needs. However, there's the experience in Quebec where it actually makes things worse because you have essentially the Quebec selection certificate that, that the Quebec government needs to give you. And then it goes to Ottawa and then there's obviously the backlog in processing. 
the files there. So so the queue is, is even longer. So there's obviously ways for federal government and, and provincial government to collaborate. But um, I, I I don't see uh, the Legault government, uh, what you, what's the word you use, playing ball uh, with this uh, in the sense that it doesn't align with their political agenda um, at all. And they've just, you know, came back uh, to power with even a stronger mandate at the National Assembly than they than they had before. Uh, however, I do think um, that there's a couple of issues that the federal government could work on to to help, uh, you know, be in the you know, proof the Quebec government that they are in good faith in terms of things that they they are aligned in priorities. Uh, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of uh, people who would like to come and immigrate. Uh, actually to Quebec, but also to other Francophone communities uh, outside of Quebec who can't because there's just so many visas who are being uh, who are being uh, basically uh, rejected when it comes to uh, Francophone African countries. So that's an issue that the federal government needs to deal with that actually Quebec would want them to deal with. And it goes in the sense of more immigration. So that's something that they, they're aligned, at least there ideologically. So there's a couple of files that they could be working on. Uh, instead of just, you know, focusing on, on the ideas where they will cl clearly, ideologically never be aligned. Joel, there's no silver bullet to this problem right now, but if you were in the Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Department, what would you say they have to do in terms of baby steps to get where they need to be? There's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. Uh, Canada's issued visas to about 200,000 Ukrainians in the last 11 months or eight months or so. Uh, a lot of those individuals can, can be granted permanent status. Uh, you're exactly right. We don't need, you know, uh, rocket scientists, brain surgeons. We need people who can reshingle a roof, people who can lay interlocking brick, uh, and different provinces have different needs. What we really have to do is focus on the needs of employers. Uh, people call my office regularly asking if they can hire someone to work in a kitchen, uh, someone to work, uh, you know, building decks or what have you. And I always have to tell them the same thing. Yes, you can, but it takes months and months. And in many cases, by the time those workers actually arrive, the need has passed. So we're dealing with a system that's not only not responsive to immigrants and to people who want to reunite with their family members in Canada. We're also dealing with a system that's not responsible to, or not responsive to employers. And what's happening ultimately is nobody's needs are being met, despite the fact that everybody seems to agree that immigrants and, uh, is something that Canada needs more of, much, much more of. And I think what has to happen is we have to change our perspective on how we're approaching people and also change our perspective on who we actually want to have come to the country. Great conversation, guys. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, Emily, stick around. You're going to be in the second version of the Press Gallery. And a quick reminder to people, Finance Minister Christian Freeland delivering her mini-budget. Yep, that's the fall economic statement on Thursday. We will have special coverage right here on CTV News Channel. We'll be bringing you the politicians responsible for your money, top economists as well, breaking it all down on how the government's going to be spending it. We'll have that starting at 3.30 Eastern time. Still to come, convoy leaders take the stand. Today was Chris Barber. Tomorrow, we're expected to hear from Pat King. The Press Gallery will dig into that right after this.
The inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act continues with Bridget Belton. She's a truck driver and early protest organizer. She's testifying right now. Belton teared up during her testimony while watching a video she had shot herself, and uh, she was describing her experience trying to cross the border. The video, posted on TikTok, was widely circulated at the time. More protesters are set to appear before the commission this week, including high-profile organizers Tamara Leach and Pat King. So what's ahead for the inquiry, and could the commission hear from Ontario Premier Doug Ford? We all want to know. Let's take this to the press gallery. Bob Fife, Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief, and Emily Nicolas. She's a columnist for Le Devoir. Bob, let's start with you. What's stuck in your head today? that was significant from the convoy protesters that we had heard from so well, far? Uh, uh, Mr. Barber, Chris Barber, for example, um, he, he actually did get a vaccination. And, <laughs> and full of and, mask mandates. And, and, and he never brought his truck. Right. You know, I, I'm fine, you can lose your truck, buddies, but I ain't bringing my truck yeah. here to get lost. The same thing with Bridget Belton. Same, uh, she didn't bring her truck either. So there's a bit of hypocrisy here. Yeah. Uh, you know, these were the leaders of the, of the uh, 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 trucker convoy, and they were bringing everybody to Ottawa, but they never brought their own trucks. They didn't want to ha risk losing their trucks. The other thing about Barber is I thought he was kind of a, you know, he was well-trained in terms of he, he, he really pr practiced um, you know, for for example, when they asked him about um, some of the racist statements he said in the past, he said, "Oh, I don't agree with that anymore. Right. I don't, you know, I, I've changed my mind." Um, you know, he, he also, you know, was letting on that he he was just an ordinary guy, and, and everybody was happy coming to protest these mandates. And then, but when he was asked specific questions, he was I think he handled himself pretty well because he, he he didn't get himself caught. Right. Uh, like we saw some of the police officers last week, right? Yeah, I know. And it was interesting to see sort of how he was almost reframing himself in all of this as well. Emily, just before I bring you in, I want to alert uh, viewers, as you're seeing on screen there, that is a protest we're watching right now, a large rally, I should say, in Toronto in support of education workers facing back-to-work leg uh, legislation. Uh, we'll be getting to that in just a moment. But, Emily, before that, I wanted to ask you, any surprises that you saw today from the commission? I don't know if it's a surprise, but it did catch my attention that um, we had, um, I think it was Chris Barber saying that, you know, he had essentially no clue where the money went in terms of the donation. It's not a surprise itself, but it's always interesting to see it just, you know, stated blankly that, you know, all the, the, the money went to, to a personal uh, banking account. And, and in terms of the cash, we don't know where the cash went. Uh, it's, it's, I think, something that if uh, people who participated in Convoy uh, were watching, they're, they're definitely going to be, um, you know, paying attention to that in, in terms of accountability from, from their uh, movement uh, leaders. Uh, but apart from that, I think, you know, if we, we take a step back and, and listen uh, or, or actually go back to the actual mandate of the commission, which is looking into the Emergency Act and whether or not um, it was necessary to call it, I don't know if with what was said today, we have a better idea of what's the answer to that question. But I do think we have a better idea of who the convoy organizers were and what, what's their mindset and who, who they were before, because they're very much unknown, I think, still to the greater Canadian public. But one of them that's really known, Bob, is Pat King. And we're expecting him, yes. I, I think, tomorrow or the yes. day after. Yes. What are you looking forward to from him? 
Well, he's very unpredictable. Uh, you know, uh, as we've saw all the videos of him um, saying some pretty horrible things and on the verge of uh, at times uh, looked like he was preaching violence. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I think he'll probably be heavily coached as well because they're all facing charges, right? Right. So, um, but, you know, with this guy, who knows? Um, I think everybody's going to be watching tomorrow because Pat King is somebody who's unpredictable. And Emily, just before we come back to you, Bob, I'll bring you in on, on this rally that we're seeing right now. Yeah. And, and clearly, the images that we're seeing, you know, thousands upon thousands of people uh, rallying in support of these education workers, and specifically on the use of the non-withstanding clause of the Ford government. Um, you know, I mean, Rob Benzie yesterday was talking about it yesterday, something that the Ford government, you know, this could be the second time they use it. They had also looked at it another time. Is this something that is becoming a bit of a crutch for the, for the Ford government to try and push things through? Well, look, uh, I think you have to let the collective bargaining process work its way before you resort to such a heavy uh, use of a notwithstanding clause um, to be able to shut down, you know, prevent people from, from striking. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're going to reach a deal and they won't have to do that, but that's pretty heavy-handed. And, you know, the Prime Minister today was also criticizing Ford. And, you know, he gets along well with Ford. But he says, you know, we can't be just using the notwithstanding clause at any whim. Um, it was not meant to do that. Uh, but it is also their legal right. The provinces do have the right under the Constitution to bring in the notwithstanding clause. So. Yeah. And, Emily, a right that <coughs> Premier Legault has been using as well in that province. Yes, uh, but not to uh, resolve uh, this kind of conflict. I think what I'm seeing from Ontario makes me uh, think back actually more uh, to the 2012 student movement in a way where um, you had the, the uh, special bill that, that was invoked uh, to crush protests as well. It's not obviously it's not the same situation, but in terms of what it means, I think socially uh, you have a similar a similar thing where essentially you have teachers protesting for a better educational system. And um, there's there's a whole social issue there that is much bigger than just the issue of the notwithstanding clause, which is already a big issue. But I think um, I think if we they might they might end the strike if they if they use it. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, they won't end uh, you know the the demands that people have for the educational system in Ontario. So maybe you 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 end the fact that the teachers are not in the classrooms, but you don't end the the social crisis that's that's behind it. That's what happened in Quebec in 2012, and that's usually what happens when you use that kind of bill uh, against a strike that 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 is supported by a large part of the population and and represents a very strong, important uh, institution in the province. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Bob Fife from the Globe and Mail, Emily Nicola, um, appreciate that as well. That is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We will be back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.